This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so very thankful that we have your word to illuminate our thinking, to enlighten our souls, and to strengthen us in our spiritual life and our spiritual walk. Father, we know that your word is truth, that it originated with you, and that you oversaw and controlled the process whereby uh, your thoughts were inscripturated, written down by the prophets and the apostles in such a way that you were able to allow their own individual styles to come through in the writing of Scripture, yet you oversaw the process to guarantee that it was free from error. Father, we're thankful for your word, for the way in which you have provided it and preserved it, and may we treasure it for it is eternal value for our souls as it provides that for which we ultimately hunger. And we need to remember, as our Lord taught, that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Now, Father, we pray that as we focus upon your word this morning, that we might uh, be challenged, instructed, informed, and that we might be willing to transform our thinking and our lives according to the priorities of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, and today we're going to begin a new section in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in verse 19. So I want to take just a few moments at the beginning to review how Jesus has developed his thinking in these chapters. The Sermon on the Mount began in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, and covers three chapters, 5, 6, and 7. As I've pointed out in the past, this is a section that is often misunderstood and misapplied for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that it's just difficult to interpret. I think one of the reasons it's difficult to interpret is because Jesus uses a lot of Hebrew idioms uh, which are uh, culturally uh, utilized phrases that don't uh, mean what they say literally, but they have a figurative use in the culture. We have many idioms that we use in English as well, and native speakers recognize these and use them every day. We, we talk about uh, someone who all of a sudden can't speak or they're shy as the cat has their tongue. And, of course, we don't see any cat present, 
nothing is actually grabbing their tongue, but it's just a figure of speech. And a figure of speech uh, doesn't mean, uh, when, when we understand it, the actual words in terms of their uh, literal meaning has nothing to do with the figurative way in which that is used. That's not talking about allegorical interpretation. Allegorical interpretation looks at the scripture and says that the literal meaning is not important or significant. There is an underlying hidden or symbolic meaning uh, in the text. That, that's something different. That's where you're really reading something into the text that isn't present. When we're talking about idioms, we can substantiate many of these idioms because we have uh, we can look at how they are used, perhaps in other areas of Scripture or in literature outside of the Bible, and we come to understand them. That's one of the things that has been helpful in the last hundred years or so is there's been a renewed interest in the Jewish backgrounds to the Bible. Now, that's not necessarily new to the 20th century. Uh, there were a few who wrote in this way earlier since the Protestant Reformation, but uh, unfortunately a lot of that did not get disseminated or spread out through uh, much of Christendom. Sadly, what happened after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and then the second Jewish revolt, which occurred in AD 135, is that the uh, Gentile church of the second century basically cut off the Jewish community that was still present within the church. There were both Jews and Gentiles in the early church, but they cut themselves off from the Jewish community so that they began to interpret the New Testament uh, without any reference whatsoever to uh, the background or framework within Jewish thought, uh, the rabbinical thought within the Second Temple period, or Hebrew idioms. And so a lot of verses in Scripture uh, got interpreted uh, in, in isolation from the way in which some of those idioms and things were, were taught. So there's been sort of a return to this, and with the discovery in the 20th century of a lot more um, uh, evidence, uh, written evidence from the period of the Second Temple, it's given us uh, a greater understanding of how language was used. So one of the things that you've seen and heard as I've taught my way through this is this emphasis on, on, uh, on idioms. So as we get into, got into this, we see that Jesus gathers, is, is out ministering to the multitudes, and he leaves them and he goes up on a mountain. And if you've been there, some of you have been there with me, th these aren't really mountains, they're just hills. And so he goes up away from the main crowd and he sits down, which is the position a rabbi would take uh, when he would teach his followers, when he would teach his students. And that's what a disciple is, is a student uh, seen here in the context of, of a typical follower of a, a rabbi. So Jesus sat down and his disciples came to him. Now eventually, by the time we get to the end of Matthew 7, we read that there's a multitude that follows them there and they're listening in. But Jesus is primarily addressing his believing disciples with reference to the fact that he's about to send them out into uh, the various villages and towns and cities in uh, Galilee and Judea in order to teach about the kingdom. And so that's the context. We understand this as 
principles related to how uh, the Jewish people were called to live under the Mosaic law in terms of practical or experiential righteousness so that they would be spiritually prepared for the time when the kingdom would come. And the kingdom is viewed as a literal physical kingdom, a geopolitical kingdom that would be centered around Jerusalem as the capital with the ruler uh, seated upon David's throne. The Messiah, Jesus, would be seated upon uh, David's throne, and this would be a a future kingdom, and this is the kingdom that Jesus is offering. And so the ethic here, in other words, the the application, the standards that Jesus is communicating are the divine standards that God expects of believers who are prepared for the kingdom. That's how we get our application. He's originally talking, as it were, let's say this congregation is divided into two groups. He's originally talking to one group that will be this side of the room, and that's composed of Old Testament-type saints, Jewish believers under the dispensation of the law during the age of Israel. Now, these people on this side of the room are church-age believers, and they operate uh, on a different spiritual dynamic because they have assets and they have realities that are very different from from the Old Testament believers. Church-age believers are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. They walk by means of the Spirit. They have a completed canon of Scripture and many other dynamics that are different. But both groups are still waiting for the kingdom because the kingdom hasn't started. So just as Jesus' original audience made up of Old Testament saints and made up of age of Israel believers who didn't have the assets of the Holy Spirit, they just had the Torah and the Hebrew Scriptures, just as Jesus is calling them to a standard of spiritual living that is to prepare them for the kingdom because the kingdom hasn't come yet, the same can be applied to church-age believers. And as I pointed out when we went through the initial sections in in Matthew chapter 5, you can find a reiteration of most of these standards in the New Testament epistles. So there's an emphasis in the Beatitudes on the kind of character that God expects of those who will inherit the earth and inherit uh, the kingdom. There is an emphasis on their character quality, which is not related to salvation in the sense that Jesus isn't saying this is what you need to do to be saved, but he's teaching them as those who are saved, saying this is the standard of life that you should have. That's the focal point of the Beatitudes. Coming out of that, he identifies their role as those who are to, by the life that they're living, challenge others to be fruitful. That's what he meant by the phrase, you are the salt of the earth. Some of you may not have been here when I taught through that, but we drilled down on that as an idiom that it doesn't have to do with preservation, but that salt was used as a, in a, as a component of fertilizer in the ancient world and was still used as such up through the uh, midpoint of the 20th century when it was usually replaced by other, other chemicals. But up th- through the midpoint of the 20th century, it was common to have salt as part of fertilizer. It would help kill weeds. And so the significance of the metaphor salt of the earth is not to preserve the world culture around you. And the reason I'm reiterating that is I still hear pe- people every now and then they haven't quite heard that enough or assimilated it, and they still in their prayers pray that we as a church might be the salt of the earth. God is not concerned about preserving the world system 
Earth is never used, although in, in that interpretation, people often think Earth is a parallel to world. Uh, God is never uh, concerned about preserving the world system. The word translated earth should be translated land. You're the salt of the land. That's how the word gaith is normally used in Matthew and in the Gospels is related to either the land of Israel or the physical soil and the physical earth. So we are to be something that generates production, spiritual production among those around us. That's a role of a disciple. You're the light of the world, introducing that metaphor, which has to do with illumination and revelation. Then Jesus moves from talking about the role of the disciple in terms of the environment around them to uh, emphasis on the standards for the, the coming kingdom. And in the next section from 517 down through 26, or, or excuse me, down through, uh, down through the end of the chapter, he uses six illustrations taking commands from the Old Testament and showing how the, uh, the Pharisees have so minimized the meaning and application of those that in effect what they have done is nullify or abolish the law. Jesus introduces that section by saying, don't think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. But And then he says, for assuredly I say to you till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. He's talking about the fact that this needs to be applied. Then he talks about those who minimize, who break the least of the commandments and teach others to do so, that that person is called least in the kingdom. Notice they're still in the kingdom. So he's talking about believers whose destiny is the kingdom, but they need to learn how to live according to this kingdom ethic. And that kingdom ethic is not the standard of righteousness that the Pharisees are teaching. That's a superficial righteousness. And that's what he means in verse 20 when he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will no, by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now he's not talking to, he's talking to them as believers. So here is one place. There are others where the phrase enter the kingdom doesn't mean getting justified, going to heaven when you die, but it has to do with entering into the fullness of the kingdom as God intended and experiencing all of its uh, benefits and blessings once we are in heaven. He then gives these six examples showing that the standard, the way in which the Pharisees have taught these standards from the law is, is to minimize the law, to, to teach people to uh, break the least of the commandments. And in contrast, he gives his standards. That takes us down through the end of chapter 5. In chapter 6, instead of contrasting the wrong way to interpret the law and the wrong, wrong way to apply the law, in contrast to the right way, he now moves from the law to practice, the practice of worship. And he talks about three areas. Uh, in verse 1, he talks about giving, that giving should not be a matter of show. 
It should not, your giving should not be done in public so that it impresses people. Giving is between you and the Lord and is done to honor the Lord, not to bring attention to oneself in terms of how much they are giving or how sacrificial they are. It is simply a matter of, of, uh, privacy between the individual and the Lord. This is the concluding point. Verse four, that your charitable deed may be in secret. Now, this is when Jesus introduces in um, in Matthew. I have got the wrong PowerPoint up there. Here we go. Okay. Jesus, when Jesus says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men, the word there for charitable deeds isn't, doesn't mean charitable deeds. It does, eventually, it's an idiom. It means works of righteousness, literally. It's the word dikaiosune in the Greek, which would be the Greek term for tzedakah, the Hebrew word for righteousness. Even today, in the Jewish community and rabbinical theology, when you do a mitzvah, a commandment, you are doing tzedakah. You are doing uh, righteousness, and tzedakah often refers to charitable giving. When you give to the poor, when you give to any charitable cause, this is a, a tzedakah. This is a key term that they use, an idiom they use from the Scriptures, primarily focusing on charitable deeds. So Jesus introduces the issue of money and how you're handling your money in verses 1 through 4. He comes back to it. Uh, later on in verse 19, which is the passage we're going to be looking at. So first thing he talked about was that giving should be in private, how you handle money should be done in private. And then he talks about prayer. The same thing is that prayer isn't something you do overtly in public in order to get people's attention for how spiritual you are, how lengthy uh, and articulate your prayers are, but prayers should be targeted, prayers should be in private. And then he gave an example, which we studied. The third area of worship that is being distorted by the Pharisees is the area of fasting. They would fast. Nowhere in Scripture is fasting commanded of believers, but it is something we witness that they do. And I've talked about this in detail, that we often lose the thrust of uh, fasting today because we live in a modern age of modern conveniences, and it doesn't take very long to uh, prepare a meal. But in the ancient world, preparing a meal was often extremely time-consuming. If you wanted fried chicken for dinner, you'd have to go out and you would have to kill the chicken, then you'd have to pluck all the feathers, and then you'd have to cut the chicken, then you'd have to uh, 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 build a fire in order to cook the chicken. It took a lot of time. And if you've got something of importance that you really want to bring before the throne of grace in prayer, then you can't take three hours to prepare a meal because it's too distracting. So fasting was very practical. It wasn't some sort of magical ritual that somehow got God's attention. It was very practical. When we go on into the New Testament, in fact, uh, fasting is mentioned a few times in the Gospels. It's mentioned two or three times in Acts. But after that, when we get to the epistles, there's nothing said about fasting. It's not mandated, and it's not even talked about. So too often people attribute to fasting something uh, that has some sort of spiritual significance, some sort of uh, it, it, it's going to really get God's attention, and, and that misses the whole uh, cultural background and, and significance in terms of, of food. So what they were doing is they would fast, and then they would make themselves look miserable 
wow, look how much we're giving up for God. Uh, we ju- and they would wear uh, clothes that uh, that hadn't been washed, and they wouldn't wash their face, and they wouldn't go through the normal things. You get up in the morning, and you've got bed bed hair, and you you know put water on your hair, water on your face, and you at least clean up a little bit and shave uh, before you got in public in terms of normal things. Uh, they wouldn't do that. On the two days a week that the Pharisees set aside for fasting, uh, they wouldn't do that. They would just get up and look a mess, and then they would go out in public, and everybody would go, oh, they're fasting. Aren't they spiritual? And and those were the two days a week set aside by Pharisaical traditions when they would go to the, and they would do, they picked the two days a week to fast that were the same two days that they would go out in public and go to the temple. I wonder how that came to that conclusion. They wanted everybody to pay attention to them. And so Jesus' counter to that is that that if you fast, he's not making a command there. He just accepts the fact that this is something that's part of their culture, part of their tradition. It says, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. This was a standard practice in the very dry climate of the ancient world that people would anoint themselves with oil. Um, the word used for anointing was the Greek word alepho, which had no uh, no religious connotation. There are two words in Greek that are translated anoint. One is the word creo, which is a verb, but the noun form of that verb is Christos, the, for Christ, the translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach. Both words emphasize the anointed one as a noun, or to anoint as a verb. And those words are restricted to formal ritual occasions. Alephos, what everybody did every day. You would anoint your face. If you were, if you go to Israel during the summer, you anoint your face with, with a sunscreen. Uh, they would anoint their skin with oil in order to uh, prevent it from drying out in a dry desert climate. And so Jesus is saying if you're going to fast, don't do it so everybody knows that you're fasting. Get up in the morning. If you're a woman, put on your makeup, do your hair, dress up, look nice. You look, shouldn't look any different from any other day. If you're a man, comb your hair, shave, uh, do whatever you're going to do, and get dressed, clean clothes, go about your day. Nobody should ever guess from your demeanor or from your dress that you're fasting. And so Jesus is contrasting the behavior of, of worship that the Pharisees are emphasizing, which is all for public show, versus what really honors God, which is that which is a matter of the soul, the matter of one's thinking, the matter of one's orientation to God. That's the context. We talked about uh, the fasting when I gave the initial uh, study of Matthew 6 at the beginning, and we've spent the last two or three weeks just on the Lord's Prayer. Now we come to the next topic, which will really dominate the rest of this chapter. In verses 19 through 24, Jesus is talking about our attitude toward money and possessions. That's right, God's going to get into our pocketbook. In fact, the implication here is if your belief in God, your focus on the Word of God and your relationship to God isn't impacting your how you handle your money, then you need to reevaluate whether or not your relationship with God is a priority. That one of the most significant ways for any of us to evaluate our own spiritual lives is to evaluate our priorities, especially that in terms of how we use 
the resources that God has given us. And so Jesus introduced this theme related to money, as I pointed out in those first four verses, of how we give for charitable reasons, giving to uh, whether it's to the church, whether it's to missionaries, whether it's directly to help those who are in need. And now he returns to that theme. In verses 19 to 24, he emphasizes our priorities in relation to our possessions, whether it's material possessions, whether it's land, whether it's houses, or whether it's just uh, just how we handle our our money. And then in verses 25 to 34, he's going to get at the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter often is our desire for security. We look to money and possessions to provide security for us. And so as we look at this, it's easy for people to uh, get the wrong impression. And so I want to talk a little bit about what the Bible teaches here, lest we take this out of context. One thing we have to understand is behind this whole discussion is the issue of idolatry. Idolatry isn't merely the worship of images made of metal or wood and attributing that to, uh, attributing deity to those images, but it is, that's only the external manifestation of idolatry. Idolatry is really attributing to anything, uh, that which only God can provide. When you're looking to money to provide security, then you are saying money will provide that which only God can provide, which is security. When you are looking to money as the source of happiness or possessions, as a source of happiness, having certain kinds of clothes, driving certain kinds of cars, uh, living in a certain neighborhood, having a certain kind of house, there's nothing wrong in and of itself with those things. But if our attitude is that those things are going to get be the source of happiness and stability and security, in, in, the, in a way that only God can provide it, that's when it becomes idolatry. And there are passages in the New Testament that teach this. Colossians 3, 5, Paul says, Therefore put to death, that is to eliminate this from your life, put to death your, the members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So the scripture clearly teaches that greed, covetousness, materialism is wrong. Covetousness refers to the lust for money, for possessions or things, hoping to find in the money, possessions and things that which only God can provide. But there is nothing wrong in and of itself with money. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul says it's not money that's the root of all evil, often that verse is misquoted. It's the love of money, which is the root of all evil. So let me just give you some summary points to be aware of. First of all, the Bible doesn't condemn money. The Bible doesn't condemn wealth. The Bible doesn't condemn the accumulation of property or possessions in and of itself. There are several people in the Scripture, great spiritual heroes, heroes who were incredibly wealthy, Abraham was one. Job was one. There are others that we see in the New Testament that were wealthy and had possessions. Barnabas was one who had wealth and possessions, and he made an individual choice to sell much of his land and to give that money to the church. 
And so we see a priority there on the part of some. That's an individual decision. There's no mandate there. Uh, that's not given as even a pattern for other believers to follow. It is an individual choice. The Bible doesn't condemn money, wealth, or the accumulation of property or possessions in itself. However, under point two, the Bible does condemn a, an inordinate focus on these things because it distracts from our relationship with God and our focus on the application of the word. When we put the pursuit of possessions and financial security above our uh, walk with the Lord, our time in study of the word, our time in the application of the word in other areas, then it becomes a distraction and a hindrance to us. And it hinders our spiritual life. Money is just a tool to do other things. There is a significance to having money. I've noticed that in my life, not everyone who has the gift of giving is necessarily uh, wealthy, but I have noticed that many people that I know who have the gift of giving money also have the gift of making money, and they didn't get distracted by making money. They understood that everything that they had, uh, from their homes to their cars to to their material possessions to their wealth, really ultimately belonged to God, and God blessed them with that in order to give that to the aid of others, to missions, to churches. Uh, in fact, many ministries over the years have been blessed richly by wealthy individuals who God raised up to provide for those particular needs and those particular uh, ministries, and that is a great blessing. But that's not normative. The normal way in which God supplies for most ministries and most needs is through the sacrificial giving of everyday believers who are just prioritizing how they utilize the financial resources that God gives them. The third point, by way of summary, is that money is a good and necessary requirement and reality of life. We need to work in order to eat, as Paul says in Second Thessalonians chapter 3. We need to work to provide for our own personal, individual needs of, of food, shelter, and clothing, but also for the needs of our families. We, it's also good to work in order to have extra, in order to enjoy uh, the luxuries of life, and in order to uh, be able to pay for some of the things that we desire in life. There's nothing wrong with that. We also need to save money for the future. We need to save money for financial security when we're older and we can't work. And we also need to focus on saving money for those short-term or intermediate-range needs that come up with relation to uh, uh, times where we may go through unemployment, when we may have various health problems, when we have to repair the, the uh, possessions that we own, whether it's our cars or our homes or boats or whatever it might be. And we also have to provide for the education of our children. We should also be able to set aside some money for vacations when we have time off so that we can relax and recharge our, our batteries. All of these are noble and responsible uses of our financial resources. But the highest priority in terms of the use of our financial resources needs to have something to do with our relationship with God 
and with giving, whether that's in terms of the local church or just privately helping others that we know of that are in financial distress. So the fourth point is that, however, we have to recognize that those day-to-day financial responsibilities should not be at the expense of our spiritual responsibilities, which includes giving to the local church, giving to Christian ministries and missionaries, and giving to help other believers who are in financial distress. The Proverbs, uh, Proverbs teaches that the wise person lays up treasures and an inheritance for his children and his grandchildren. Let me suggest that that applies also to ministries. That one of the ways, I, I used to be associated with, a, with another ministry and worked for them for several years uh, in a publication ministry, and it was amazing to watch how many people had left legacies in their wills to the church and to other ministries, and many believers do that. You can go out on various websites for Christian organizations, and they usually have some uh, page there giving people instructions on how to do this, but that's a wonderful way to help provide for uh, the longevity of a ministry, uh, either giving directly to, uh, leaving money directly to an organization, a church, or a, uh, a, a ministry, or giving to, to the, just leaving a legacy to the individual missionary or pastor. I know of several where that has surprised them and God has provided for them in that way. A lot of pastors have no retirement plan. They live hand to mouth during most of their time of ministry. The same is true of many missionaries. And yet there's always been a few godly saints who have in their wills made some provision for them, and that is one of the ways in which God supplies for them. A lot of people aren't aware of those options, and I just wanted to um, make that known that that's one way in which believers can utilize their resources and have planned giving over a, a long-term, uh, long-term, long time frame. We also are to help other believers who are in financial distress. A good thing to have perhaps in your family budget is a way in which you can set aside a certain amount of, 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 of your financial resources in order to help those that you hear about that come in the, in the local congregation that are going through financial challenges, and then you've got some resources that you've laid aside over time that you can use to uh, help them and to bless them in one way or another. Uh, my fifth point is that how we handle our money with reference to financial pr- pr- uh, priorities is a barometer of our own spiritual life. This is exactly what Jesus is getting at here in this particular passage. We have to reach a point in our life that we recognize that all of our resources, all of our assets, all of our physical possessions are just something that God has given to us, provided for us to use ultimately for his purposes, not for our own pleasure and enjoyment, that there's nothing wrong with that. This is not something to do with asceticism, but that they should also be used recognizing God sort of given us, us the administration or stewardship of those resources so that we can use that in order to bless others. And finally, under point number six that I have today is thus how we handle finances is one of the great tests of our spiritual life. 
The issue is, are we serving the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and money? Or are we looking at our money as our own possession, and we just give some of it to the Lord, but the rest of it is mine, and I'm going to keep it? That's the attitude, unfortunately, that many people have. It's not quite that overt, but that's what we think. This is what Jesus is emphasizing when he comes to his conclusion in these verses. In verse 24, he says, No one, this is stated as an absolute eternal principle, no one can serve two masters. Can you imagine somebody who was working for both Adolf Hitler and uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt during World War II? Can't do that. You can't serve two masters. You're going to end up uh, serving one and hating the other or serving the other and hating the first one or the other. You can't serve, his conclusion is you can't serve God and mammon, which is just a an Aramaic term for money and possessions. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't have your, you can't put financial success as a goal over spiritual success or you will probably have, have neither. Uh, it may work for a while. You may think it's working for a while, but it doesn't. So the Lord has a lot to say about uh, money, and the Scriptures has a lot to say about money. As I pointed out from the Scripture I read this morning, Luke 12, verses 13 through 15, which is the introduction to that parable, one in the crowd around Jesus said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. My brother got all the inheritance. He needs to give part of it to me. He's whining to the Lord about this. But the Lord said, Man... Who am I to be the judge or arbiter in terms of your inheritance? And then he followed it up by saying, by giving a warning. Take heed and beware of greed. Beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Our life is not about what we have or what we don't have. Our life is about serving the Lord and our relationship to him. Now when we come to the last part of Matthew 6, there's basically three sections here. As you can see, this is taken from the New King James Version. You can see from the paragraph marks, you have three statements, 19 through 21, 22 and 23, and verse 24. This is stated very clearly here. In the first section, there's a contrast between treasures on earth and treasures in heaven. The second section, verses 22 to 23, is a section that is often misunderstood and misinterpreted, and it's one of those passages that I find in many commentaries is sort of glossed over. Uh, and often, if, it, if anything is said, it's not right. It's kind of a, we'll have some fun with it when we get there as we come to understand what that means. And then the conclusion of verse 24. So let's look at the first part. In these first three verses, Jesus is focusing our attention on treasure. He says, on the one hand, don't lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So verse 19 tells us what not to do. Verse 20 is a contrast, starting with the word but, and tells us what we should be laying up for ourselves. And it's an interesting uh, idiom that's here, as we'll see in a minute, but I just want to focus on structure here. First, he tells us what not to do. Second, he sa says what to do, and then he explains it in verse 21. So initially, we're told, uh, and the topic here, obviously, the one word that shows up in every verse is treasure. 
We're not to lay up treasures on the earth, but we are to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. So how do we do that? Uh, this is the focus of this section. Now, in verse 19, Jesus says, or it's translated usually, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth. Jesus uses a pun here, a play on words, a paranomasia. He, the verb is thesarizo, which is over here. Uh, if you look at that in the trans, uh, transliteration of the noun form, thesaurus, you see where we get our word for the English book, a thesaurus. It's a storehouse or treasury of words. Okay, so that's, the, that's what, what the derivation comes from. Literally, Jesus says, do not treasure treasure. By using the noun form with the verb form, he's emphasizing the focus on treasure. He's not saying don't save for the future. He's saying don't be inordinately attached to it. Don't treasure your treasure. What should you treasure? You should treasure your relationship with the Lord because all treasures are subject to loss. Uh, The moth can eat up clothing and uh, that which you've stored in terms of the fashion that you have and it's not really rust, it's the word brosis, which refers to something that eats or gnaws or corrodes something. So he's saying if you lay up treasures, you can lose it. They're not permanent. They can be lost. If you have have money in the stock market, the stock market may crash. If you have uh, money in precious metals, the market uh, for the commodities may crash. If you uh, have uh, money in, in real estate, the real estate can crash. You can't put your hope in these investments. Not that they're wrong. It's just that's not what your priority is or our priority. That's not the source of happiness or meaning in life. So they can be destroyed. The word there is afanizo, meaning to be darkened, to be hidden, to be ruined or destroyed. Then you, you get the idea. The contrast is don't treasure treasure, but treasure treasures in heaven. Treasure those things that have an eternal consequence. Now, next time we'll come back and we'll talk some about how this relates to the judgment seat of Christ. It relates to a topic Jesus mentioned several times in here, which is rewards. And in terms of what we have in this life, that which we do while we're walking by the Spirit has an eternal consequence to it and eternal rewards to it, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verses 12 and following, dealing with the judgment seat of Christ, that we are rewarded for that which is done while we're walking by God the Holy Spirit. But that which we do in the flesh has no reward. It has no eternal consequence. So we're to lay up treasures for ourselves, treasures in heaven. Now, in Matthew 19.21, when Jesus is... Uh, as talking, he says, if you want to be mature, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. See, what he's talking about here is if you are using your financial resources under the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, while you're walking by the Spirit, to take care of the needs of the local church, the needs of other believers, the needs of the poor, then this has eternal consequences. It has, it's divine good. You're laying up treasures in heaven, and there will be reward at the judgment seat of Christ. It's not a financial reward. It's a reward in terms of our future roles and responsibilities in the kingdom. 
So this is his emphasis. Now his explanation of the importance is that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now again, he uses the term heart here often as a uh, interchangeable with the word mind. The heart is the seat of our, it's a, the core of our being, and heart often describes the thinking part of the soul. In other words, as you think about life and the priorities of life, if your focus is on money, that's what you're going to focus on, not your relationship to God. But if your treasure is in heaven, on heavenly things, that which has eternal value, then when you arrange the priorities of your life and how you spend your time and your talent and your treasure, then it's going to be focused on that which has eternal uh, value. So here he's indicating that if you want to evaluate your spiritual life, look at how you handle your possessions and your treasure. That's going to tell you what your real priorities are, are in life. Then we come to the next little section. This is a fun little section in Matthew 26, 22, and 23. Jesus is using an idiom here. Let me just read it briefly. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, aren't you all edified just by hearing that scripture? Isn't that clear? See, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us until once we realize that this is building off of a a common biblical and Hebrew idiom. Uh, And we have to take ourselves out of our uh, modern and postmodern understanding of the eye and go back to the pre-modern uh, ancient understanding of the eye. We think of the eye as primarily the the organ in our body through which light comes and knowledge and information comes into our soul. There's a couple of times the Bible uses the eye that way, but that wasn't the normal way the ancient person thought about the eye. He thought about the eye as that which showed what was in the soul. We think of it as the, the opening that brings light in, Whereas in the ancient world, they thought of the eye as that which revealed what was in the soul. So you have this development of an idiom. Now, I just want to remind you that an idiom is a figure of speech that has a consistent meaning so that when you use an idiom, it can't mean just anything to anybody, but it means something to and the same thing to everybody. But the terms that are used in the idiom uh, don't have anything to do with its uh, way, the, the, the idiomatic meaning. For example, we can talk about when pigs fly. It has nothing to do with pigs or flying. We usually use that to refer to something that is impossible or something that's never going to happen. Also, we can uh, talk about somebody who's got a problem with uh, alcohol as someone who drinks like a fish. Again, we may not, we're not talking about anything like fish. It's just an idiom and people understand what that means. And so when we look at this idea of an eye, if you look at the verse, Jesus is contrasting a good eye with a bad eye. And what exactly does this good eye, bad eye idiom have to do with anything? In one of the parables that Jesus is, uh, uh, Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 20. It's about a, a uh, landowner 
who hires workers uh, all day long at different stages through the day, hires different workers, and then at the end of the day, he pays all of them the same at the end of the day. If they just worked an hour or they had worked eight hours, they all got the same pay. The workers who had, of course, worked all day are griping and complaining to the farmer, and the farmer responds by saying, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? See, how many times have you read that and you just went right past and went, I have no idea what that means. What does he mean? Is that, is that the evil eye? No. That's not what this is talking about. In Hebrew idiom, a good eye is showing what is in the soul, that the soul is healthy and generous. A bad eye, someone with a bad eye, is someone who's tight and, and stingy with money. They're not generous. And so when he says, the, the farmer says this, he says, is your eye evil? In other words, are you stingy? Are you a tightwad because I am good or I am, I am generous? You see the same thing in Proverbs 28, 22. It goes back. It's an ancient idiom. A man with an evil eye hastens after riches. They're not saying that everybody who hastens after riches is evil, but that the person with an evil eye or the person who's stingy and a tightwad hastens after riches and does not consider that poverty can come upon him. Another passage in Proverbs 22.9, he who has a good eye, literally, but the translator here caught the sense of the idiom that a person with a good eye is someone who is generous and open with their financial resources to help others. He who has a good eye, he who is generous, will be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. This also is seen in one of the Jewish writings in the Mishnah. Whoever has a good eye, a humble spirit, and modest soul is a disciple of Abraham our father who enjoys this world and in, uh, enjoys this world and inherits the world. So this is the idea here. What Jesus is saying is the lamp of the body is the eye. Whether you have a good eye or a bad eye has to do with your soul and what comes out of you, comes out of your eye, not what goes in through the eye. Um, the lamp of the body is the eye. It illuminates the nature of the person. If your eye is good, in other words, if you are generous, your whole body will be full of light. It, 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 your whole life manifests your generosity and your openness of spirit. But if your eye is bad, if you're a miserly tightwad, your whole body will be full of darkness. It'll impact your whole life, everything you have, if you are stingy. Uh, if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus is using this to indicate again the, the significance of how we handle our money. If our treasures are in heaven, then we will be generous with those around you to the degree that God has prospered us. And so he comes to a conclusion in verse 24 saying, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the, and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. The point is that money makes a difference. How you handle it indicates your spiritual values. And one of the principles in Christianity is that we're to be grace-oriented, which means that we are to be uh, generous in our giving. 
uh, giving not just to the local church, but giving to others, giving in many different ways as we go through life, giving with our employees, being of a generous spirit with others. And it's not always just seen uh, financially, but often it is. What's interesting is in the... Um, in some of the studies that are done on charitable giving in Christian churches, that in a poll that was taken in 1996, 35% of Christians reported that they gave no money at all to charity, even among those who are regular church givers. On average, the Christian giving per family amounts to less than $200 a year. Now, that's going to vary depending on what kind of congregation you're in and whether you're a conservative Bible-believing congregation others, but this is true. It also varies by ethnicity. You know, if you're, if you're I'm going to, I never get a privilege to be racist in the pulpit, but if you're a white evangelical Christian, you're a tightwad. You're a miser. Other ethnic groups will give three, four, five, six times as much money as the average white evangelical gives to the local church. You know that, and I know who. I'm not going to mention who some of these other ethnic groups are, and I'm not saying that's a standard. I'm just saying that this shows that we need to learn more about being grace oriented and generous, and this is part of of culture that's embedded within certain types of uh, certain types of people. But as believers who are grace-oriented, this should be impacting uh, how we handle money. Now, I'm going to come back next time, and we're going to talk some more about biblical principles of giving and how we should evaluate our own financial resources in terms of what the Scriptures teach about giving. But ultimately, the problem that people have with giving is we're so worried about the details of life and using our having the financial resources for the details of life that we're not really trusting God for the details of life. We're trusting our money. And that's the point in verses 25 to 34, and we'll come back there next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to be challenged by your word. There's not one of us here who can't pay attention or shouldn't pay attention to the message that Jesus has in the Sermon on the Mount. We need to be challenged in the way we look at our possessions and our resources, recognizing that everything that we have, everything that we own, really is just on loan from you. You have given us these things and blessed us with them, and that we should use them for your honor and glory. Father, but we recognize that how we use money doesn't have anything to do with the eternal question of our salvation that that is based not on our resources and our riches, but is based on uh, your riches and your wealth. For you gave of your wealth through your Son who came into human history to die on the cross for our sins. And he paid the penalty for our sin, something we could never do. We could never be good enough. We can never be generous enough. We can never be kind enough because we are at a core under condemnation because of sin. We're all born sinners. Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But you laid upon him the iniquity of us all, and that he who knew no sin, the one who was perfectly sinless, bore in his own body on the cross our sin that we might, by simply trusting in him as our substitute, have eternal life.
Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain and trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Father, we pray that we would all be challenged by uh, what you have taught us this morning in your word, that we might learn to be more grace-oriented in every area of our life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.